Hi, thank you for listening to the ETH podcast. In today's episode of the ETH podcast, we will be talking about this. The world is waiting impatiently for a vaccine against COVID-19. Most people expect the vaccine to solve the pandemic's problems and get back to life as it was before. There are great expectations. Whether they are realistic or not, we don't really know yet. First, I want to ask the very basic questions that sometimes lead to not-so-simple answers. My name is Jennifer Kakshuri, and I'm wearing a mask. I'm at Podcast Tower together with immunologist Emma Slack. She's a professor at ETH, and Johannes Trück is also here. He's an immunologist as well and is a practicing pediatrician at the Children's Hospital called Kinderspital in Zurich. And before I ask you basic questions, what is your simple question at the moment, Emma, regarding a vaccine against the coronavirus? This is still an extremely complicated subject, right? Um, I think the, the biggest question on everybody's mind is how well these vaccines are really going to work. Um, and this, we're, we're all still waiting with bated breath for the results from these phase three trials that are now started. But there's certainly many other questions I could ask. But this is the most important one, like how will we proceed in the future? And you, Johannes, what is your one question? I had the same question in mind than Emma, um, is, uh, you know, do they even work? How well they work? You could maybe ask the additional question, what's the short term, what's the long term effectiveness of both vaccines? Because that actually massively affect how we go along in the long run. But if I had another additional question, simple question is when are they going to be available to the general public? And so, do you have answers to each other's questions? How would you discuss these if I weren't here? <laughs> well, you know, they're estimations, but I think they're, they're just, um, you know, random numbers. I think it's really hard to, to tell and we should really wait. Everyone is impatient, but I think that we just have to wait. I mean, there's a lot of pressure anyway on these groups, on these research uh, questions. And so I don't think it helps to add any more pressure to that. Absolutely. And what's really important, I think, is that the political arm of this, so what we see a little bit going on in, in America with the administration trying to put pressure that, that things come out before the election, for example, this is an absolute no. Right, that this has to be done with full safety and with full reporting and carefully. And I think the world will, will really appreciate having a good, well-working, safe vaccine um, and not a, not a simple patch-up that in the end causes more problems than it solves. So let's leave COVID for a moment and become more general and more basic. Why do we at all get vaccines? I mean, I know it's so, to protect us, but just to get it right, to hear it from immunologists, why do we get the shots as babies, as children? So maybe to answer this is best to go fully back in history to where this all started. So um, the first vaccine, inverted commas, um, was from Edward Jenner in the late 1700s. That was when smallpox was an enormous problem. So it, it smallpox, the mortality is something between three and five percent, right? With higher in children. So it's it's a very it was a very, very serious condition. It was really killing a lot of children every single year. Um, and even those that survived had horrible lifelong scarring, right? So this is a really visible, horrible disease. Various people had noticed that milkmaids never got this. And that turned out to be because they got an infection called cowpox. And what Jenna did was then to deliberately infect a young boy at the time with cowpox. 
and then later to actually deliberately infect him with smallpox, which is not something he would be allowed to do today, and demonstrated that, that he was protected from smallpox. And with that, he could demonstrate that you could actually, by giving people a very mild infection, you could protect them from getting a much, much more severe disease. So obviously the, the benefit of that was very obvious because this was an extremely visible disease. There was absolutely no way of treating it and many, many kids were dying from it. So the, the cost benefit was, was clear, even though actually at the time the so-called vaccination was actually a mild infection with a, with a live virus. And that developed, obviously, over the years. We started then to have vaccines for things like rabies, um, again, which at the time was, was lethal. And as this progressed, we started to understand better and better how you can actually safely induce an immune response that protects you protects your child from getting a horrible infection without really any symptoms at all. Um, so learning to make either dead microorganisms that really don't cause disease or learning to make little parts of these microorganisms that you can inject together with something called an adjuvant. And these are then really not making you sick. You don't get well, pustules on your skin. Yeah. You don't. Um, you kids might have get a fever. In some the very, very mild symptoms basically of having an inflammatory response to the to the vaccine itself but that is sufficient then to protect you from having a very horrible infection and actually this is if you look at it from a kind of bird's eye view this is the only way that you can protect whole populations from these very very infectious diseases so things like measles for example if you have an unvaccinated population one person with measles will infect on average, 18 other people. And then again, them will Right, and each infect. of those infect 18 other people. Each of those infects you very, very fast to get to these very high numbers. If you don't have this blanket immunity, so-called herd immunity, then this simply spreads like wildfire through, through a population. And equally, you can try and generate that by just letting the infection run, something that's been proposed also a lot for, for COVID. Aside from the fact that that's associated with a lot of people dying, which is obviously unacceptable, you, with just letting the infection spread, never can reach a threshold above which you really don't see any spread any longer. Just the natural kinetics of an, of an infection don't allow that. Um, so you have to artificially go in and, and stop produce these immune responses in a large fraction of the population. Johannes, how do you explain what a vaccination does? Let's take the flu vaccination. Maybe it's easier if we sort of speak about something concrete that somehow isn't as complicated as COVID. Okay, so so I mean the flu vaccine is 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 a special vaccine from a pediatrician's point of view, but uh, I mean in general um, the way I explain it to families, it's basically train the immune system so it's prepared when the real virus or bacterium comes and uh, is going to infect and 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 cause disease. Our immune system has the amazing ability to learn, and that's you know we take uh, the advantage of that to basically give a mock infection and then have uh, the real infection uh, that uh, when it comes along to be protected at, at that stage. So I also refer to it as a as a insurance. Um, we'll probably going to talk about it later, but it's sort of the understanding the, the concept of risk and individual risk versus population risk. Um, but that's probably a different question on its own. We want to speak about families who don't want to get shots for their children. I guess you're relating to that, if I if I understand correctly. 
why, I mean, why is the process of finding a vaccine so long? I mean, it seems very long right now for COVID-19, but actually it isn't very long if you compare it to other ones I looked up that it takes exactly. several years. It and perspective, I think the cholera vaccine was first tested in 1902 and it was licensed in 1980. Okay, so that's kind of where we've been for the most part of the last hundred years is it takes really, really a long time to get a, a vaccine to market. I think a useful analogy is it's a bit like learning a language. So to design a good vaccine, you have to be able to speak the language of the pathogen you want to get rid of, and you have to be able to speak the language of the immune system, and you have to be able to get the two of them to communicate with each other effectively. Um, so effectively, the immune system can say, go away to the pathogen. And um, learning a language takes time, right? We all, we some people that. are quicker and some are <laughs> Some people slow. are quicker, some people are slower. Um, and some pathogens are easier to understand, and some pathogens are harder to understand. So there are pathogens like HIV and malaria that we've been trying to understand for a very long time. We now start to have some progress, but it's taken many, many, many decades to get to this point where we could actually design a vaccine to activate a useful immune response against these, these pathogens. With SARS-CoV-2, so the causative agent of, of COVID, we had a head start because it's very similar to SARS-CoV-1, which already appeared in 2003. So actually, we've been, we've been learning to speak the language of this pathogen for quite some time. The virus, everybody's seen these pictures now with these Sputnik-style things the sticking spikes, out on all sides, yeah. which are spikes, and this is the spike protein. Um, and this is what we need antibodies against, and we know exactly actually where on the spike protein we need these antibodies to bind um, in order to get protective immunity. And that basically cut down this preclinical research window from its standard 20, 30 years that they could actually do this in around three months. Um, so the big pharma, the vaccines that are now in phase three clinical trials, they could actually design a vaccine that was very likely to be effective against SARS-CoV-2 in an extremely short time. What my group is involved in was actually, so at the beginning of the pandemic, we ummed and awed a lot about whether we should get involved or not. Our normal bread and butter research is that we work on developing vaccines that you can swallow or vaccines you can use as a nasal spray. And we were doing this also a lot in the context of farm animals, as well as in the, the idea to develop this towards human applications. And the benefit of the type of vaccines we were developing there in the context of COVID-19 is, is that these mucosal vaccines, so-called, don't need needles to be delivered. They also don't need doctors, nothing against doctors. <laughs> But there are some parts of the world where we don't have enough doctors. Um, so it's highly relevant to have a vaccine that you could just send out in, in packets and say, okay, everyone needs to take one of these tablets. They're also very, what we're working with, particularly because we've been developing vaccines for use in farming, these are very cost-effective vaccines. So they're rather easy to produce and rather easy to store and distribute. Um, and we thought that was, those were, were characteristics that in the long run could be very important in getting a COVID vaccine out to, to everyone. So we're still working on this. We're obviously not going to compete with the big pharma vaccines that are now in phase three trials. This is rather something we think that could contribute to forming a very rapid vaccine platform that could be scaled up in the case of future pandemics. And what about you? What are you working on right now? Or what does your everyday life at work look like? 
So I'm mostly a clinician, and so as a immunologist, I look after children, mostly children with uh, immune problems or those that uh, get investigated for immune problems. Also caring for patients who had severe or weird diseases. And I also work as a, a general pediatrician in primary care. Well, on top of that, I've, I also <laughs> run a small research group uh, on, on um, well, B-cell immunology. Wait, can you uh, tell yeah. us what B-cell immunology is for people who've never well, heard it? Okay, yeah. So, so B-cells are the cells of the immune system that produce antibodies, which people probably heard about. So these are little proteins that swim around in your blood and help you fight pathogens. They stick to specific bits of, of uh, bacteria or viruses or toxins. So you need those B cells um, uh, to, to get to those proteins, to these antibodies. Uh, and they're a, a crucial arm of the immune defense against diseases and is, is a typical readout if you look at immune responses to vaccines. And I've been studying sort of the cellular mechanisms, how these uh, B cells sort of get triggered how they behave, how they get uh, reactivated uh, upon an, another encounter with the same foreign structure and, and uh, trying to understand the immune system. And when do the two of you work together? Where is the moment where the practicing pediatrician and the person in research start talking or communicating or discussing? So the, we have one project together, which is actually based on my normal, my normal non-COVID work. There we've been working at improving immune responses in the intestine. And one of the sets of patients that Johannes works with are very premature babies who have problems with resisting spread of, of infection originating from, from the bacteria that normally live in their intestines. And so one of the projects we have is trying to develop ways to improve the immune containment of these, these gut bacteria in very tiny babies. Johannes is looking at the immune system status. We are looking at which bacteria are there and whether they are friendly bacteria, whether they're more likely to be, to be dangerous, and what immune responses specific for these bacteria are already present. And to be able to, to specifically improve, for example, the, by giving a an oral vaccine to the mothers to improve the, the spectrum of antibodies in the breast milk um, that helps to protect these babies better would be one example of, of what we're trying to do. And how many babies are we talking about? How many? How can so the, the study will is, is not started yet. It will commence. The clinical study will start in hopefully November. We're still waiting for the final approval, but it should be around 80, 80 100 yeah, babies we're yeah, hoping to study yeah. with this. So I want to go back to the influenza shots. Why is it more discussed about this year than any other year, especially regarding children? I mean, there's um, a lot of similarities between, like, let's say, the clinical picture of COVID and uh, the flu. And so obviously there, there are various aspects which were basically influenza and COVID cross, uh, you know, in discussions. So one of them is just the pure nature of you can't really differentiate between those two diseases if you know if you get rid of one 
then it's much easier or the chance of actually picking up the other or with the same uh, resources is is better the flu still kills a lot of people and it's good to have uh, the vaccine is available when we know it very well and uh, and we can actually do something about it and and so we need to protect the, the ones that are most likely to suffer from complications of flu and then the ones that are in contact with those people so i think this year is it's a, it's a challenge it's also a good as I said, it's it's a good time to talk about it, to to make it more obvious to people to get vaccinated. We don't really know what's going to happen from the epidemiology side of things. There's some information from the southern hemisphere that with a very strict lockdown, you basically don't see any flu. It's unlikely, I guess, from my perspective, unlikely that it's going to be zero in Europe because we don't have the same restriction in place at the moment. But it's probably less. Um, but still, it's it's a useful public health measure to protect those people. and also makes life a little bit easier for doctors and patients to find the right ones who then have COVID rather than the flu. So I have been reluctant to the flu shots up till now. And of course, this year I've been discussing it with my family as well. And we're all going to get the flu shots. But as a pediatrician, how do you how do you handle families who don't want to get any kinds of vaccines? I mean, not even talking about the flu shot. I mean, I know families who didn't want to have any shots done with them. But but how do you handle them? Because I know it's an extremely emotional topic. Long story, short questions. How do you handle families who say no? I think, again, this has to be separated from flu because that's slightly different. Let's uh, think about the routine vaccines that are sort of recommended by the public health authorities in Switzerland. In my experience, it's it, the most important bit to understand is why people are doubtful. And it's actually not a homogeneous group of anti-vaxxers. So everyone's got their own reason or their own doubts or their own background why they might be critical about vaccines. This is the first bit of information that is really needed and that is crucial to actually guide the discussion towards their need to because it takes a lot of time. Not all of the, all of the doctors have the time to actually do that. Not probably not all doctors want to spend that time doing that. But it's something that um, that is has is a good entry also to to you know discussing uh, why uh, you know what's the what maybe the misconceptions maybe the misunderstandings maybe the associations people have made with vaccines and so so to me that's the most critical element in discussing vaccines. So really to put into context in the history of a family why. They yeah, I mean, there might be reasons uh, they may have vaccinated their first child with um, them and then some sort of horrible disease appeared, which may be just coincidental. Or maybe they heard something or maybe they're reading or watching YouTubes all the time. I mean, this is completely different uh, type of person, different perspective they have. So uh, a doctor who advises on vaccines should be taking that into account in their discussions with the parents. I take the liberty to actually uh, also tell the parents if they say, well, I, we find it too early to vaccinate, for example, that's probably the most common reason. It's, you know, look at that little baby. Do you really want to poke a needle in that little baby and then it's going to cry and uh, and the immune system is not ready? And, uh, you know, this is and uh, I try to make them understand that actually the, the little ones are the most vulnerable ones. But also that I take the liberty to actually rediscuss that. You know, you're going to meet those little babies in these families you know, almost every month in the first year of life. And so I should say, well, you know, 
Well, Chad, I'm going I'm, I'm to talk to you again in a month's time and, you know, think about it and hear some information. I also take the liberty to, to, if they don't have a real vaccine plan or, you know, they don't have any detailed plan when they're going to start vaccine, to actually let them sign a document that um, tells, uh, you know, you've been informed about the risks. It's your, at your own risk. I don't agree with you. <laughs> This is not the official recommendation. Please, both parents sign here. Just to make it very clear that this is something that I'm very strong, have a strong belief in that this is a good thing and that they can protect their children. Can you relate to families who don't want to get vaccines for their kids? Totally. So this is this is something one comes across as soon as one has kids at school in Switzerland that um, that one gets into these discussions. I think one of the The other big challenges is that the information available from the the anti-vaccine movement is very, very noisy. Um, and it's also sold via websites with very plausible names, right? They're, they don't say this is this is an anti-vaccine website. They're called things like the vaccine information site or the it's very hard. Like, how should you, with no medical background and no scientific background, be able to differentiate between a site called the Vaccine Information website compared with the CDC, right? That why, why should one sound more credible than the other? This is one of those has some associations with the American elite and you know, all of these things that we're not allowed to talk about. Um, so it's a very, it's like a, tra not a so trend in, in a way trend, but it's... There's a very vocal expression of, uh, and you know, lots of stories being told, lots of very emotional um, material being put out by the anti-vaccine movement. And there's very little that comes from the other side, right? We just say it's it's nice if your child doesn't have measles. But most people these days also have never seen measles, right? This was also different when when our parents were, were little, right? Then they still had the case that every year measles went round and people were afraid. So it's also out of a position afraid. of uh, of uh, privilege that people can say, "I don't want." I so don't we want live in a world where this these risks are not are no longer visible. Right? It's completely disappeared from our realm of of experience, and and I think that that remains also a problem. Right, that we're not communicating well enough what the actual risk is. Right, I mean, what are these diseases? What is polio? Right, I mean. People were also terrified of polio. You see these these old pictures of people in iron lungs, but now nobody nobody remembers polio. So, so we need something like a you know a museum of infectious disease, or you know, where we can we can explain and and people can see what what happens. We haven't eliminated these diseases. Then polio is nearly gone. Right, we were making good progress with polio, but measles is still very much in in some countries. Very, very much circulating, and this gets continuously re-imported everywhere else. Well, you just, just no, well, just relating to your comment of communication is is re I think is really important. It's it's um, there are numerous studies that have shown that the the their pediatrician or their doctor, their primary care pediatrician, is the most trusted source of information. And so I think we should really, as a as a as a community of pedi pediatricians, be aware of that uh, strength and of that um, force uh, to actually have people, you know, to pointing towards people. the right uh, uh, information source of information. And um, I, I also totally agree with sort of the that this is something very abstract, very obscure. This uh, you know these diseases, and this is where I. I 
take the analogy of this insurance thing, you know, saying, you know, this is like an insurance uh, that, you know, we all have for, you know, all sorts of things like, you know, our house being broken in, <laughs> burning down, earthquakes, all these things that we know are never going to happen. And I'll try to make the ex explain to them that, you know, you're voluntary just giving loads of money and sort of signing up for that without any any doubt. And here we know that the chance of your child actually getting this disease or even having a complication and even have being severely disabled or dead is extremely low. And that's gonna, not going to happen. But still, I mean, this is like, you know, there's no downside uh, apart from that. Um, you know, it, it, it hurts. It's a, it's, a, it's a needle. We don't like it. Nobody likes it. Uh, but this but is this is this is minimal against the risk you're taking, and so I think um, this whole communication. But it's, it's quite um, there are specialist people who just uh, think about this: how to communicate risk, how to do this in a very good way. I'm not an expert in that, but you know, I'll, I'll try to translate what I, uh, into the to the the practice. What what uh, what experience tells me? What you know? What I get from these uh, specialist people. I think that's uh, that's it's critical, really, to inform people and also think about how they might, uh, you know, when they go home, how, what what are they going to do? Can I provide them with something with a with a respectful information, a source of information like a leaflet or some website where they can actually get all the information they need without worrying about the false claims that are made on other websites? So the general population is waiting for a vaccine. COVID-19, and they're hoping that it will be quick. How realistic is it that we'll get back to normal life soon? It took about 30 years to eradicate smallpox with the vaccine, <laughs> just to put this in perspective. Now, of course, we have better infrastructure. We can produce these things better. If the vaccines completely block the transmission chains, so that means if you're vaccinated, you don't get infected, you don't infect anybody else which is rarely the case that that's 100% efficient, then to reach this driving the vaccine to extinction, we think we need to vaccinate around 60% of the world's population. At the moment, most of the vaccines need more than one dose. And we've got to make those, right? So it will take <laughs> um, some time. So this is going to take time. I think this is... So even if we get the results from the phase three trials punctually... They don't have to stop the trials. They can just keep going up till the, the readout time. We see the results are great. They stop, scale up production. I wouldn't hold your breath. <laughs> And you, Johannes, um, would you hold your breath? Still, we're still in this for the long term. Yeah, I agree. Um, but, I mean, it's it's as uncertain as all these <laughs> things in the during the pandemic. But uh, I think a major obstacle is also the distribution of vaccines. I mean, is really getting it to um, the people everywhere. So it's it's uh, it's a logistical nightmare, basically. So um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. So thank you, Emma Slack and Johannes Drück, for joining me at Podcast Tower. We're here with our masks. That's why we may sound a bit weird, but we're here all together in the studio. That's why we're wearing masks. Emma is an immunologist at ETH and Johannes Drück is a pediatrician and immunologist at Kinderspital Zürich. This episode of the ETH podcast was produced by Thies Fachter's Audio Story Lab and me, Jennifer Kakshuri. Sound design by Luki Fretz. Mm -hmm.